Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Explicit content is found in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club Podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. A minister's wife is found by her husband, barely clinging to life, after a brutal attack in their home. Was this a home invasion gone wrong? Or was there something more sinister lurking in the shadows? What we want to know is who silenced Peggy. Okay, on to the show. Margaret Peggy Nikolai was born on October 7, 1948, to William and Billy Joe Nikolai. She was a sweet and a quiet child growing up. She was very introverted, only becoming comfortable with strangers after she spent some time with them. Her radiant and comforting smile made her approachable. She was very active in her Milwaukee, Wisconsin Methodist church. She was close to her brother, Ted, and sister Catherine. As she matured into a young woman, it was clear that Peggy's passions were with her faith. It was her love of organ music that led her to pursue her master's degree from one of the most prominent Methodist universities in the state of Texas, Southern Methodist University in Dallas. It was here that young Peggy would meet the exuberant Walker Rayleigh. Walker Rayleigh, born in 1947, had a tumultuous and unhappy childhood. He grew up in Owensboro, Kentucky, to distant parents who were unreliable caregivers. His father, a sheet metal worker, was an alcoholic, and his mother, overwhelmed with her lot in life, was neglectful. The only time he ever had peace was when he was in church. There, a lively congregation would worship and sing. The minister stood at the pulpit delivering messages of love, fear, and eternity. He was who Walker aspired to be. He noticed how the minister captivated the attention of the congregation, and he just knew that he was meant to lead a flock of his own. When Walker was still a boy, he had his mother ask the minister if he could deliver a sermon. The minister agreed, and Walker went hard at work writing a sermon. That Sunday, 
he delivered what he wrote to a congregation of 350 people. Even years later, witnesses remember his ease in the pulpit. Walker knew preaching would be his ticket out of Owensboro. After attending college at Western Kentucky University and later at Vanderbilt University, Walker transferred to SMU's Perkins Theological Seminary in 1970. One of his seminary professors recalled Walker, saying he was one of the best students he ever had. Walker's talents did not go unnoticed by his professors, his peers, and Peggy. Peggy shared with close friends that she was very impressed by the extroverted Walker and was pleased by his strong faith. The pair spent a considerable amount of time together getting to know one another. Their love for each other grew over time, which prompted Walker to ask Peggy to be his wife. She promptly said yes, and the couple wed in 1971, and Walker looked for a new church for his family to call home. The First United Methodist Church of Dallas is in the heart of downtown Dallas. When I was younger, my brothers and I used to call it the Batman Church because of its gothic exterior. It looked like it belonged in Gotham City. The church is just as beautiful on the inside as it is on the outside. The enormous ceilings and stained glass windows welcome its weekly parishioners for worship. When Walker and Peggy first attended services in the church as a married couple, they were taken aback by its grandeur. Walker imagined himself on the pulpit with thousands of eager eyes on him, hungry for the word of the Lord, delivered by a passionate and outspoken minister like Walker. He applied for and was granted a position as an associate minister at the church. Peggy was thrilled for her husband. She recently joined the church choir as a soprano and began to find friendship in the women of the church. Her parents were overjoyed for her happiness. She had a wonderful marriage, a strong faith, and a career teaching music to children. Walker would spend three years at First United Methodist Church before moving on to Christ Methodist Church in Farmers Branch, Texas. After four years there, Walker came back to First United Methodist, this time as a senior minister. He would be the youngest ever appointed to the position at just 33 years old. There aren't many reports of the Rayleigh's marriage in between 1971 and 1981. By most accounts, the pair were happy and content, but longing to start a family. They welcomed a son, Ryan, in 1981, and in 1983, the couple welcomed daughter Megan to the family. Walker finally had the quintessential family and a coveted role in the church. He quickly rose to stardom on the pulpit. His congregants appreciated his approachability and a servant's heart. Despite the $100,000 a year salary he received after his promotion to senior minister, Walker always gave back to the congregation. He was captivating on the pulpit he encouraged his followers to be open and welcoming to people of all race and circumstances, a rarity in conservative Dallas at the time. He advocated for those whose rights were called into question by the federal government and the Texas legislature. Despite his outward exuberance, Walker was still the little boy who longed for acceptance. He worked tirelessly on his sermons, often spending an entire work week on the presentation, the focus on certain lessons and most importantly, the choreography. He became a prominent figure in the Dallas religious community and spent a considerable amount of time working his way up the social ladder. 
Sure, he advocated for equal treatment amongst all of God's children, but enjoyed the perks that came with being in such prominence. This is who Walker always imagined he would be, someone coveted and enamored by a flock of congregants in the community. Ward eventually got around about his message of equality and anti-racism, and he was lauded by the more liberal community leaders and citizens for his outspokenness. Walker used his position to influence the political power around him. He was nothing if not ambitious. His ultimate goal was to be named bishop by 1988, when he would be just over 40 years old. Meanwhile, Peggy's interest in teaching Sunday school, raising her children, and sewing made her the ideal minister's wife. She became close to a few parishioners, but maintained her introverted demeanor. Those who were unable to get close to her found her standoffish, but her close friends would say that she was warm and friendly. Walker and Peggy became quite close to another couple in the church, John and Diane Yarrington. Peggy had the unique opportunity to see Walker with all of his flaws. The minister, who presented himself so self-assuredly on the pulpit, was a mess at home. He was so full of self-doubt and worry. Could he handle being the beloved Walker Rayleigh? Peggy tried to comfort her husband by quelling his fears, but he would lash out saying she couldn't possibly understand the burden of not only leading and supporting his family, but also his church family, a family he couldn't afford to be replaced by. I wonder if at this point, Peggy questioned her ability to influence and comfort her husband. It seemed through most of the reports I read that Walker was largely unconcerned with Peggy or her happiness. She was a vessel to be used to make himself look better. She was a small, demure, and beautiful woman, but she was also very frail. This was something Walker didn't appreciate about his wife. He wanted her to be more involved and approachable, but it was just outside of her nature. Peggy's focus was on raising her two children and giving them the love and support they often missed from their father. She took on the role of two parents while trying to maintain a happy outward appearance of a minister's wife. Walker's instability was beginning to show with his staff and close friends. He was pushing himself to the brink, working long hours each day in order to make sure every sermon he delivered was perfect. He would berate and yell at his staff often. He never offered an apology afterwards, like you might expect from a pious man of God. Instead, he would come back the next day and be a completely different walker. These outbursts would often cause his staff to leave. The more staff that left, the more rumors began to circulate around the congregation about their unstable minister. Walker's image was being tainted by rumors and he needed some damage control. So he would spend the next week ironing out a sermon on his conduct. When Sunday came, he stood in front of his congregation and acknowledged his behavior. This surprised his former staff, but Peggy saw through his message. He knew that they would see him as a strong man, willing to admit his faults, a true servant of God. It's unclear when Peggy began to withdraw from her duties at the church. She relinquished her Sunday school duties, she resigned from the choir, and she even stopped attending Sunday services. She had suffered from a bout of walking pneumonia, but she had recovered quickly. When asked about his wife, 
Walker would say that she was still slowly recovering from her illness and wanting to spend more quality time with the children. Though he made excuses for her, it clearly bothered Walker that his wife was not there, as he felt she should have been. The woman who could put a room at ease with her gracious smile was slipping away. Had something broken her spirit? If so, what could it be? It didn't make sense to those who knew her intimately. She had always been happiest when playing the organ or singing in the choir. A friend encouraged her, with some persuasion from John Yarrington, to put on a recital at the church's Sunday lunch. She reluctantly agreed and planned to play the harpist chord with John, ending the recital by playing a piece from composer Johann Sebastian Bach. Attendees of the recital would later comment on Peggy's trance-like state. She played as if she saw no one in the room. She was removed from the trance when the applause took place. It was an odd yet beautiful performance. It was clear how talented Peggy was, but why had she hidden the talents from the world so suddenly? One explanation into the seclusion may have to do with the affair Walker began to have with congregant Lucy Papillion. Lucy had dabbled in the fashion world as a model, but eventually got a degree in clinical psychology. She returned to Dallas and attended the church where her father was a bishop, a position that Walker Rayleigh eventually wanted for himself. It was 1986 when they began their affair. It's likely that Walker was using her to help himself rise to prominence. He made many promises to the 45-year-old single mother of two teenagers. She believed that he was going to divorce Peggy and marry her. He knew at first that the church would be concerned about the timeliness of their impending engagement, but he knew it would all work out. All he had to do was accept fault, and eventually, the church would move on. It was evident that Lucy believed Walker's promises. Walker would often meet Lucy in her Dallas apartment, where they would carry on the more explicit aspects of their affair. Peggy may have been the silent wife who knew, or she could have been oblivious. After all, her husband did spend many hours every week working on perfecting his sermons, we will never know because all the players in this game remain silent. In March of 1987, Walker was still a rising star in the church and community due to his continued anti-racism activism and message. Not everyone who heard his message agreed. Walker walked into his office one day and was handed a letter addressed to him. It had been slipped under the office door and picked up by his secretary. He opened it to find expletive lace threats to his personal safety. He was taken aback, but ignored the first letter. It was clear someone was trying to scare him, and he thought that this was the last he would hear from the angry letter writer. The letter writer would send a few more letters, and that's when Walker finally involved the authorities. When the sixth letter was received, the Dallas Police Department contacted the FBI to assist with the investigation. The letters, according to the FBI, were likely the work of a white supremacist gang or individual. Someone was disgruntled with Walker's message of tolerance and equality. The seventh and final letter came on April 19, 1987. In short, the letter alluded that Walker would meet his end on Easter Sunday. The letter read, Jesus may have risen on Easter, but you're going to take the fall. 
the authorities were taking no chances with the safety of the Rayleigh family. Two plainclothes police officers were to watch over Walker Rayleigh and his family 24-7. There was talk of Walker needing to skip the Easter Day service, but that was unfathomable to Walker. On April 21st, 1987, just two days after Easter, the FBI installed a car phone in Walker's personal vehicle. In the event he felt attacked or felt in danger, he had an opportunity to phone for assistance. Walker reluctantly agreed to wear a bulletproof vest during the Sunday sermon. Despite the threats against his life, it seemed to those around him that Walker was largely unconcerned with the threats, but why? That may make sense later. It was Wednesday, April 22nd, 1987, a typical day for the Rayleighs. Walker spent the majority of his day at work, writing down his ideas for the next sermon. The events that transpired later that night are a little hard to follow. He returned home from church around 6.30 p.m., where he found Peggy in the garage. She had been tinkering with the garage door latch, attempting to lubricate it with a bar of soap. They walked inside and shared a glass of wine while discussing their upcoming vacation to San Antonio. This was a special trip. It was the first time in a long time that they would be alone together, just relaxing. He told Peggy that he was going to go to the SMU library to do some research for a sermon, as well as a book he was intending to write. She stated she was going to return to the garage to finish the work she was doing. Walker arrived at the SMU library around 7 o'clock p.m., and spent approximately 30 minutes there. He then called Lucy Papillion to see if she was home. She was, and he drove to her apartment nearby. He spent another 30 minutes there, relaxing with her before he returned to the library. His first stop was a checkout desk. He asked when the library was due to close, and he was not seen by library staff after that. He called home around 8.30 p.m. from a payphone just outside the SMU campus and spoke with Peggy. She cut the call short because she said she was putting the children to sleep for the evening. Walker told the children goodnight and drove to a nearby gas station. Peggy put the children to bed successfully and then called her parents. She spoke to them until about 9.15pm. Something must have drawn her attention to the garage. She entered the garage and was startled to find a rope around her neck. She flailed but she was no match for her attacker. Five-year-old Ryan heard the commotion and made his way downstairs. He heard a struggle going on in the garage and opened the door to find someone in a black ski mask attacking his mother. Ryan has never spoken publicly of the attack, but was minorly injured. The attacker quickly left the same way he came in and left Peggy on the floor. Ryan didn't know what to do, so he just stood by, hoping his father would return home quickly. He waited by his mother's side for hours and may have eventually fallen asleep. A neighborhood jogger did see a man in a business suit running through a yard two houses down from the Rayleigh's house at around 9.30 p.m. Another neighbor heard some rustling in the shared alleyway between their house and the Rayleigh's house. Walker was not seen again until roughly 11 o'clock p.m. when he returned to the checkout desk and gave his business card to a student working at the desk. He asked the student if he could leave his card for the research librarian. The information he was looking for was on the back of the card. The student flips the card over and reads, Anne Sullivan Biography, 10.30 p.m. 
He then left the library. At around midnight, Walker called the main house line from his newly installed car phone to leave the following message. It's about 10.30 or 10.45. I'm at SMU. If you want to, go ahead and lock the garage door. I'll park out front. At the time of the first phone call, Walker was about six miles away from the campus. It is interesting that he chose to call the main line of the house instead of the private line. The main phone line went directly to the answering machine and did not produce an audible ring. The private line would have provided an audible ring so that if Peggy could, she would have answered the phone. He placed a second phone call at 12.30 a.m. and it states, It's 12.30 and I will be home at 12.45. Walker arrived home shortly before 12.45 a.m. He noticed that the garage door that Peggy had been working on earlier had been left halfway open. So he left his headlights on as he opened the door enough for him to walk through. As he walked in, he noticed Peggy's convulsing body on the floor next to her car. He tried to turn on the lights to the garage, but the bulbs had been removed. He was shocked by the sight and called police to request medical assistance at 12.43 a.m. It was confirmed that Peggy had been strangled. When Walker found her, her face was a purplish red and severely bloated. Nearby, her five-year-old son Ryan stood. He had some minor injuries, but otherwise was okay. After Peggy's body stopped convulsing, she lay on the floor, almost serene. There was no visible struggle that had taken place, so she was likely attacked from behind without being given the chance to fight back. Her glasses and hair remained perfectly in place. At 12.45 a.m., Walker called the Yerington home to inform them of Peggy's attack and to ask them to come over quickly. They arrived a few minutes later and saw Peggy being loaded into the ambulance. Diane offered to take the children to her home and John remained behind with Walker. When they arrived at the hospital, doctors informed John that Peggy's neck had been broken and that the likely cause was strangulation. John was speechless. Walker hadn't told him that Peggy had been strangled. He wasn't even sure if his friend knew. He went back to deliver the news to Walker. On April 23rd, authorities questioned Walker on the events surrounding the previous day. He informed them of the threatening letters and that their suspect was likely the letter writer or his brother Gary. When Gary received word that Walker had named him as a potential suspect in the attempted murder of his wife, he was flabbergasted. However, he was able to clear his name by proving he was out of the state and at work when the assault occurred. Even though Peggy was rushed to the hospital, she had sustained so much brain damage that doctors concluded she would remain in a permanent vegetative state. To help aid in her recovery, Peggy was placed in an induced coma to help alleviate the swelling in her brain. Walker stayed in a suite near the hospital and waited for word on his wife's condition. He asked his best friend, John Yarrington, and wife to watch over the children while he tended to Peggy's needs at the hospital. The entire community was in shock. How could someone attack an innocent woman in front of her children just because they were angry with Walker Rayleigh's message of tolerance? As authorities continued investigating the letters and now Peggy's attempted murder, they received a big break in the case. The letters were typed using a typewriter and they realized the typewriter actually belonged to the church. Police tried to eliminate Walker as a person of interest in the case, but 
were unable to do so, they discovered the voicemails Walker left on the family's answering machine. When they cross-referenced the times mentioned by Walker in the messages to his phone records, they found many discrepancies. They surmised that Walker was likely trying to give himself an alibi. They also returned to the home to check the latch on the garage door. They did not find any soap shavings or indication that it had been lubricated. They did find a garage door opener and discovered that the Rayleighs had recently installed the automatic opener a few days earlier. It seemed none of Walker's statements were adding up and authorities now considered him a person of interest in the attempted murder of Peggy Rayleigh. It had been nine days after the attack on Peggy when authorities informed Walker they would be coming by his suite to question him. When guards arrived at his door, they found it locked. They broke in and found Walker Rayleigh clinging to life after having swallowed a bottle of pills. On the desk, they found a scribbled suicide note that said the demon inside him caused him to do things he didn't want to do and that the demon had finally won. Walker was rushed to the same hospital where Peggy was being treated. Together, they both remained in a coma, but only Walker would emerge from his. Walker refused to speak to the police after the suicide attempt, but did give media interviews. He even took them on a tour of his garage where the attack occurred and where Peggy's body was found. Diane Yarrington visited Peggy in the hospital several days later and found her friend, who used to have vibrant eyes, was no more. She held her hand and told her that the children were safe with her and that they were okay. A tear escaped Peggy's eye, but we will never truly know if she comprehended Diane's message or if this was just a random response from her body. Unfortunately for the police investigating the assault on Peggy, they didn't have enough to charge Walker Rayleigh with any crime. Thus, he was allowed to walk free while Peggy remained a prisoner in her own body. Walker wanted to return to the pulpit, but news of the affair, suicide attempt, and possible responsibility of his wife's current state made him ineligible to continue leading the church. Walker was devastated. Surely, by accepting and confessing to his sins, the church would welcome back the pious and fervent believer, but they didn't. He was placed on a leave of absence in May of 1987 and eventually was removed from his post as a senior minister. What was Walker to do? He had no church home, no church family that looked at him in awe and craved his message of peace. He was lost, but he knew there was more for him out there. He wasn't going to be tethered down by Peggy, nor his children. In August 1992, five years after the attack on Peggy Rayleigh that left her in a permanent vegetative state, Walker Rayleigh was indicted for attempted murder. In those five years, Walker had relinquished custody of his children to the Errington's, divorced his wife, and moved to California with his lover, he had a completely new life that hardly resembled the life he had in Dallas. The trial was moved to San Antonio, Texas due to the media coverage in Dallas. The Dallas County District Attorney's Office had what they thought was a strong circumstantial case. Walker's lawyers did all they could to stack the deck in their favor. They were successful in getting the venue moved, but were unable to suppress testimony from Lucy Papillion as well as testimony about Walker's suicide attempt just a few days after his wife's attack. 
By the time Lucy Papillion took the stand, she and Walker had long ago ended their relationship. It was reported that she testified in a very low tone, understandably not wanting to relive this time in her life. The former model and current clinical psychologist admitted to having an affair with Walker during his marriage to Peggy. This admission gave credence to the prosecution's assertion that Walker killed Peggy in order to run away with Lucy and start a new life. The jury also heard testimony from Billy Joe Nikolai, Peggy's mother. Billy Joe testified that a few days after Peggy's attack, Walker confronted her in an irritated tone, asking her if she found a cord or a wire in the garage. She testified, My reaction was that he was looking for something or other. It was also during Billy Joe's testimony that the jury saw pictures of Peggy before and after the attack. They also learned about her life now in a nursing home living in a vegetative state. Once Walker testified and admitted to his affair with Lucy, as well as lying to the police about his whereabouts during his wife's attack, the case should have been a slam dunk for the prosecution. However, the two lawyers sent by the DA's office despised each other and reportedly did not talk to each other during the trial. The Dallas Observer also wrote about a key piece of testimony that should have been brought to trial, but because of the lack of communication between the lawyers trying the case, was not. That testimony would have been from Ryan Rayleigh, Walker and Peggy's son. Ryan was five years old at the time of his mother's attempted murder. The newspaper reported that the day after the murder, Ryan had been taken to the pediatrician because he had tiny broken blood vessels all over his face and in the whites of his eyes. These types of injuries are consistent with severe oxygen deprivation. The doctor also noted five distinct marks on his neck from someone's four fingers and thumb. Diane Yarrington said the doctor told her, whoever did that to Peggy did it to Ryan also. As shocking as these claims were, they were not the most salacious claims that the Dallas Observer made. One claim was that Ryan admitted on several occasions and in very convincing ways that his father strangled his mother in the kitchen and then coached him over and over that a bad man did it instead. No one from the Dallas County District Attorney's Office ever interviewed Ryan Rayleigh. Because of a circumstantial case that was tried by two lawyers who refused to speak to each other, Walker Rayleigh was acquitted of attempted murder against Peggy Rayleigh. After his acquittal, Walker went on Inside Edition and was paid thousands of dollars for his interview. If I'd been at home that night, instead of with somebody else, this may not have happened. And if it had happened, it may have happened to me and not to Peggy. And that is a shame and a guilt that won't go away. This married preacher admits he strayed into the arms of another woman. But Walker Rayleigh insists his sins do not include the attempted murder of his wife. Dallas, 1987. A late-night 911 call triggers one of the most sensational criminal investigations in the city's history. Dallas, On April 22nd, Dallas police and paramedics were called to the home of one of the city's most prominent religious leaders. Uh, I've just come into the house and my wife is in the, in the, in the garage. Somebody's done something to her and my children are in the floor. 
cops arrived at the house to find Peggy Raley, wife of Methodist minister Walker Raley, strangled. Raley told them he came home to find her close to death. The only witness, their five-year-old son, Ryan, too traumatized to give a reliable account. The attack left Peggy Raley in a vegetative coma, neither dead nor alive. Once a talented musician, she is unable to do anything for herself and unlikely ever to recover. He returned to California and was able to forego the $18 million judgment against him in a civil case filed by Peggy's parents by instead agreeing to pay $337 a month in alimony. In April 1988, Walker Raley married widow Donna Berry and moved into her $3,000 a month apartment. He didn't invite his children, mother, or brother to the ceremony. In fact, he didn't even tell them about it. He was starting over, again. In December 2011, Peggy Raley died in a Tyler, Texas nursing home. She had not spoken in 25 years. Her death was, in a way, a relief for her family. Her brother Ted told the Dallas Morning News, There is little to say about Peggy now. The Peggy we knew was gone long ago. The story was 25 years ago, when Walker ruined numerous lives. Peggy is now free. The story is over. Walker Raley still resides in California, though remains silent on his part in the murder of Peggy Raley. He has no relationship with his remaining family members, including his two children. Lucy Papillion is a clinical psychologist in her mid-70s practicing in California. She's only offered condolences to Peggy's family and clarified that she had no part in the murder of Peggy Raley. Billy Joe Nikolai, Peggy's mother, passed away on June 27, 1999, without having justice for her daughter. Her father, Bill Nikolai, passed away in October of 2002. Ryan and Megan dropped the surname Rayleigh and adopted the Yarrington's last name. The last day they saw their mother was the day she was attacked. Billy Joe and Diane Yarrington agreed that it would be too traumatizing for the children to see their mother, and so visits never occurred. So fan club members, what do you think? Do you think Walker Rayleigh got away with murder? Share your thoughts on our Facebook discussion group. Just search for True Crime Fan Club Podcast. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to leave us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It really does help us out. You can find us on most social media platforms, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com forward slash TCFCPodcast. And of course, our website is truecrimefanclub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. Music for the show was provided by We Talk of Dreams, who created custom music just for us. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or WeTalkOfDreams.com. Research assistance, content editing, and writing assistance for the show was provided by Brittany Martinez. Audio engineering was provided by Ches Gray who manages Chess Gray Music. Content warning at the top of the show was provided by Tyler Allen, host of the Minds of Madness podcast. While you're waiting for the next episode, check out some of my pod friend shows. 
Hey podcast listener, this is Stephen, the host of Trace Evidence, a weekly true crime podcast focused on unsolved murders and missing persons. Each week, I dig deep into the evidence, suspects, and theories revolving around the unsolved cases you think you know, Elisa Lamb, Asia Degree, Brandon Lawson, and the ones you've never heard, Lily Aramburo, Candace Hilt, Kanika Powell. If you're a true crime fan, haunted by unanswered questions, join me each Monday for a thorough examination of the victims, their stories, and the unknown perpetrators behind them. Trace Evidence is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and all your favorite podcatchers. Visit trace-evidence.com for a full list of episodes, transcripts, and to subscribe today. Hi everyone, I'm Debbie. And I'm Laura, and we host the podcast called I Got the Hell Out. Are you fascinated by cults? Of course you are. Well, I spent 10 years in one, and each week I spill all the juicy details. Some are funny, and some are downright frightening. And trust me, you want to hear these stories. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Overcast. So give us a listen right here on I Got the Hell Out. We'll see you there. Good evening, everybody, or morning, or afternoon, or whatever. It doesn't matter. We are Graveyard Tales. Now, if you like ghost stories, hauntings, cryptid encounters, and the weird history behind them, then you should join us in the graveyard. You can find us on any of your favorite podcast providers. Check out our website at graveyardpodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at GRV. Just go search Graveyard Tales. That would be easier. Now, we hope to see you in the graveyard. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 